Hello, and thanks for joining us for the third podcast of the Inquisitive Prosecutor's Guide. I'm Jeff Rubin with the Santa Clara County District Attorney's Office, and in this edition of IPG, we're going to be focusing on a pair of cases involving the nature of detentions. This podcast will provide 45 minutes of MCLE-approved general self-study credit. Our guest for today's show is the author of the California District Attorneys Association's Search Warrant Manual, author of other search and seizure publications, and noted search and seizure expert, Mike Galley of the Santa Clara County District Attorney's Office. Mike, thanks very much for joining me. You're welcome. Thanks for having me. Mike, the first case on our agenda is a California Supreme Court decision that came out the month before last called People v. Brown. Could you give us just a general preview of what that case is all about and then tell us the relevant facts in the case? The issue in the case was when the officer activated his emergency lights and equipment on a parked car, did that amount to a detention? That's the issue in the case. And then if it was a detention, was there a reasonable basis to detain? Okay. Now, so what were the relevant facts? Well, shortly after 10.30 on a Sunday night, a sheriff's department dispatcher received an emergency call. The caller, who's never identified in the case, reported that people were fighting in an alley behind the caller's home and that one person had said he had a loaded gun. The caller reported that the fight was ongoing and more than four people were involved and that people were screaming. In fact, the dispatcher even could hear screaming in the background. The caller identified the participants as living two houses down from him on the same block. A deputy was dispatched to the scene and arrived within about three minutes of the dispatch. Meanwhile, the 911 operator remained on the line with the caller. In response to additional questions from the dispatcher uh, regarding anyone involved in the fight that entered a car, the caller said that there was a car facing south in the alley and behind his home. When the caller confirmed the officer was on the scene, the call ended. Based on what the dispatcher had told the deputy, the deputy on the scene knew that there were four suspects fighting in the alley behind the caller's residence and that somebody may have said something about a loaded gun. As the deputy drove through the alley, he passed a car coming out of the alley and it was headed south. He was headed north, it was headed south. Okay. The deputy yelled out, Hey, did you see a fight? The car was driven by Mr. Brown, and Mr. Brown never responded to the deputy but kept on driving. And Brown's the ultimate defendant in this Yes, case. he is. The deputy continued down the alley, but he didn't see anyone, so he hung a U-turn, and he pulled out onto the street, and he saw Mr. Brown's car. It was parked and stopped at the curb. It was approximately two houses or so from the scene of the fight. The deputy pulled in behind the car, activated his emergency equipment, and got out and made contact with Mr. Brown. As he spoke with Mr. Brown, who was in the driver's seat, Mr. Brown identified himself and in response produced a driver's license. He showed signs and symptoms of being under the influence of alcohol. And the deputy asked him if he was involved in the fight and if he had been drinking. Mr. Brown answered yes to both questions. Another deputy arrived, conducted a driving under the influence investigation, 
and ultimately arrested Mr. Brown for driving under the influence. He was charged by the district attorney's office with felony driving under the influence. Okay, so after the defendant gets charged, uh, does he make a motion to suppress the evidence uh, that flowed from the initial contact? Yes, he did. And how did that motion play out in the trial court? Well, the trial court denied the motion, concluding that Mr. Brown hadn't been detained until the deputy observed signs of intoxication. At that point, the deputy had a reasonable suspicion that Mr. Brown had been driving under the influence of alcohol, and the detention was justified. Now, after the trial court made its ruling, the defendant appealed the case, and it goes up to the Court of Appeal. Yes. What happens in the Court of Appeal? The Court of Appeal rejected his argument and also upheld the stop and said even if he was detained, it was okay. There was reasonable suspicion justifying the detention. Okay, so they, they found that there wasn't a detention, but if there had been a detention, there still was reasonable suspicion for it. Correct. Now, this case gets taken up by the California Supreme Court. Yes. Does the California Supreme Court identify uh, the issues that they were going to focus on? Yes. They identified two issues in the case. One, whether the activation of the emergency lights on the police vehicle constituted a detention. And two, if it did, was the detention justified by reasonable suspicion? Mike, in general, did the court find any problem with an officer approaching a person in a public place and asking if a person is willing to answer questions? No, that's been deemed a consensual encounter. So you don't need any kind of reasonable suspicion to justify that consensual encounter? That's correct. But if the encounter is deemed a detention, then reasonable suspicion of criminal activity is required. Yes. So when will an encounter between the police and a citizen be converted from a straight-up consensual encounter into a detention. The United States Supreme Court has said in the case of California versus Hodari D that a detention occurs when one of two things happens. One, there is an application of physical force by an officer to, on a suspect, or the suspect submits to an officer's show of authority. Is the test for determining whether a person is detained different depending on whether the officer is using physical force to affect that detention or uh, they're just making a show of authority? Yes. In cases involving a show of authority, the question to ask is in view of all the circumstances surrounding the incident, would a reasonable person feel free to leave or otherwise terminate the encounter? And if the person actually submits to that show of authority... Okay, so there's a slightly different test depending on which way an officer is attempting to stop the person. Yes. Did the court find that the defendant in this case submitted to a show of authority? Yes, they did. Why did they come to that conclusion? Because the defendant here was already parked, and even though the officer... You know, flashed these emergency lights, the, the defendant was already parked. It wasn't like he pulled over in response to the emergency lights. The court held that Brown submitted to the show of authority by staying in his car at the scene. So if an officer flashes emergency lights, according to 
the California Supreme Court, it doesn't really make that much of a difference whether the car is moving or it's parked, correct? But Mike, in that case you mentioned earlier, California versus Hodari D, didn't the U.S. Supreme Court hold that a seizure doesn't occur when a person doesn't yield to the show of authority? Here, right, the defendant didn't take any action at all. For all we know, he wasn't even aware that the police had come up on him. That's right. But the test is what would a reasonable person do in a similar situation? In the minds of the court, obviously, if an officer activates emergency equipment, you're not going to feel free to leave. What about in situations where you have someone who might not want to leave or might not be able to leave a location because of circumstances that have nothing to do with the police conduct, but they still don't want to interact with the officers? And uh, sort of illustrate, let's say you have someone uh, who's on a bus and the police board the bus for whatever reason. And the, the passenger on the bus, they're not... They don't want to leave the bus. They want to stay on the bus. They've got their luggage there. They're planning to go somewhere. Are they suddenly detained simply because an officer comes on the bus? And what's the test in that kind of situation? No. What you're, a case that directly addresses this is Florida versus Bostick out of the U.S. Supreme Court. And the court said it depends on what restricts an individual's movement. In Florida, they had a drug problem, and the officer, as part of an interdiction program, would go on the buses and make contact with various passengers. The court said there's some other factor that um, justifies the detention there in the sense of persons not detained by the officer, but they're detained by the fact that they are a passenger on the bus. They do not wish to leave the bus. So the test is, would a reasonable person feel free to decline the officer's request or terminate the encounter. And in that case, in Florida versus Bostick, the court said there was no detention. All right, so when you have that kind of situation where someone may be already stopped and not wanting to go anywhere, independent of the police conduct, like the defendant in this case that we're, we're, we're talking about, then the test is not simply whether or not the person uh, physically submits to the officer's show of authority, but whether or not a person would feel free to decline any request to the officers or, or terminate the encounter with the yes, officer. Yes, sir. That's correct. All right. So in this case of Brown, the defendant, according to the California Supreme Court, was detained. Yes. Did the court find that the detention was supported by reasonable suspicion? Yes, it did. Okay. Why did they find that? So in... In finding that there was reasonable suspicion, did the court look at both whether the information supporting the stop was sufficiently reliable and whether the deputy could reasonably suspect that the, the person driving the car was involved in the fight? Yes, it did. So as to that first aspect, whether or not the information was sufficiently reliable, what factors did the court consider in assessing in, in, in basically trying to figure out whether the 911 call was sufficiently reliable to support the, the detention. Well, the fact that the caller was a witness, if you will, to the incident that was happening as opposed to being involved in it adds an element of credibility to it. The fact that the informant, the citizen, uh, was also reporting to the 911 dispatcher that they heard screams and the dispatcher also heard those screams. The fact that the citizen reported 
that there was a car involved and the fact that the officer saw a car driving out of the alleyway. All right. And as to the factors that went into whether or not it was appropriate for the officer to reasonably suspect that the person driving the car was the person involved in the fight, what did they look at? Well, they certainly looked at the proximity to the call. The officer was on the scene within a few minutes of the report by the citizen. The car was driving out, and obviously the defendant was seated behind the wheel of the car in the driver's seat. Okay, so even though there wasn't actually any description of the people involved in the fight at all, just the fact that this car, late at night, by itself, is driving out from the scene of the crime uh, and taking into account the fact that the, the, the deputy got there within a few minutes, that was really enough. Yes. Suspicion. Okay, now, in this case, it sounded like the dispatcher had some information that was not conveyed to the officer. Could the information provided to the dispatcher, but with, that was not communicated in full to the officer, still be considered in, a, in a sort of assessing the caller's reliability? Yes. Those were factors that the court said you could look at also, because the information provided falls within the concept of information received through official channels. Um, you might have needed to put on evidence at a preliminary hearing or at a motion to suppress under the Harvey Madden Reamer argument to show that this information was not the invention of the officer's imagination, but a real source of information. But in other words, even though not 100% of the information was conveyed to the officer on the scene, you still can look at the information that was simply conveyed to the dispatcher in deciding whether or not there was reasonable suspicion. Absolutely. Did the court consider the fact that the defendant, who was driving out of the alleyway, ignored the deputy's attempt to question him about the fight and continued to drive away from the scene? Well, in and of itself, no. It's not something that you would say because a person has a right not to be involved with the police if they choose. And in this case, he wasn't detained at that point, obviously, and he could ignore the police's inquiry. Okay. And did he even even notice... Could we tell for sure that he even knew that the officer was speaking to him? The deputy said it was a possibility that he did not hear him. Now, Mike, did the court look at any other factors in deciding whether the detention was reasonable, aside from just whether or not the caller was reliable, and aside from the facts that allowed the officer to draw the inference that the person driving away from the alley was the person who was involved in the fight? Yes. In finding that the detention was reasonable... The court took into account several factors, including that the reported crime was serious, that is, it was a violent fight between at least four people, one of whom claimed to have a loaded gun, the defendant's decision to drive back towards the residence, along with the report of a possible weapon. That provided an objective reason to suspect that he might present an ongoing danger to the occupants at that house or even the officers responding to investigate and uh, that the detention preceding the deputy's observation was exceptionally brief and non-intrusive. Okay, so these are some interesting factors here. Uh, one of them seems to suggest that whether or not the crime was serious or like felony versus a misdemeanor 
goes into determining whether or not the detention violates the Fourth Amendment. Now, I know in United States versus Henley, the high court left open the question of whether a Terry stop to investigate a completed misdemeanor as opposed to a completed felony is permitted. So in light of that, did the California Supreme Court take into account the fact that the fight had ended by the time the deputy arrived at the scene? In other words, did they consider the fact that the fight or the crime had been completed? No, they did not take that into consideration. Why not? Well, the Brown Court recognized that U.S. versus Henley left open the question of whether a Terry stop to investigate a completed misdemeanor is permitted. But the Brown Court found that the crime being investigated in the case before it wasn't completed, and in the sense that Hensley contemplated because the fight had ended only a minute or two before the deputy's arrival, the defendant was very near the scene, he was possibly armed, and there was not a wide range of opportunity to choose the time and circumstances of the stop in the mind of the court. All right, so it's pretty clear that if an officer suspects a crime is about to occur or is occurring or has just occurred, uh, it's okay to make the detention based on reasonable suspicion. Yes. But under the current state of the law, should we be arguing that officers can make a Terry stop based on reasonable suspicion where the suspect has previously engaged in criminal activity? So now you're the officer believes that the crime is already done and finished. And the activity, though, that's being investigated is a misdemeanor. So should we be saying, yeah, it's okay for the officers to make stops based on reasonable suspicion that a defendant has committed a misdemeanor in the past? Yes. Why is that? Well, it's clear that the law permits a detention where the police have some sort of reasonable suspicion where the defendant is about to commit a crime. There's no question about that. Right. Um, consistent with the Fourth Amendment, the officers can conduct a brief investigatory stop when the officer can articulate some basis to believe that a crime has been committed or is occurring. Okay, so it, that it has been committed. It's done. It's completed. Right. Okay. And also that one might have been going on at that time, too. Either Under either circumstances, an officer can detain. Okay, so at least in California, uh, the cases seem to indicate that it doesn't make that much of a difference between the misdemeanor and the felony being completed, but it is an open question for the U.S. Supreme Court. Yes, it is. Mike, let me ask a few questions that an inquisitive prosecutor might have after reading uh, People versus Brown. First... If the police activate their emergency lights, will this always result in the seizure of a driver if the driver is, is parked and doesn't take off? No, it won't. There may be circumstances, for example, a car broken down on the side of the road. An officer is just there to render assistance, but he may put on his emergency lights to notify people behind him that uh, he's stopped on the side of the road. So it doesn't necessarily become an automatic basis for detention. Okay, so it might not, in that circumstance, convey that the person is not free to leave. Correct. Uh, and so it wouldn't necessarily be a detention. All right, now let's say the defendant is completely unaware 
that the police have even activated their emergency lights. So, for example, let's say the police pull up behind a car where the defendant is fast asleep. Well, the fact that the defendant remained in the car until the police uh, came up and, and spoke to him still be considered a submission to a show of authority where the guy is just, he's dead asleep. He has no idea that anything's going on. It's not really discussed in the case, but the court rejected the people's argument that no seizure occurred because there was no evidence that Mr. Brown was aware of the officer's presence. All right. Under the general heading, I'm talking about the opinion now, under the general heading of reasonable suspicion to detain, the Brown court stated, the next question is whether the detention was supported by reasonable suspicion. The circumstances here include a reliable citizen's report of a violent fight potentially involving a firearm, and they look to that as one of the facts that justified this brief detention. So let me ask this. Does the fact the report related to a serious crime, namely this violent fight potentially involving a firearm, does that really bear on the question of whether the deputy had reasonable suspicion of criminal activity? Not really, but the court did throw it into its calculation of the totality of the circumstances. Understand that under Welsh versus Wisconsin, which is a U.S. Supreme Court case, the issue of the nature of the crime does have some bearing on exigent circumstances allowing a search. The Supreme Court has not addressed the issue in the context of detentions. This is the U.S. Supreme Court. Yeah, it's kind of interesting because certainly the seriousness of the crime can play a role in determining whether or not some of the other exceptions to the search warrant requirement apply, like ancient circumstances. But we haven't really seen the seriousness of the crime play a role simply in deciding whether or not there's reasonable suspicion. That's right. Now, in another portion of the Brown opinion, that appears to be part of a more expansive analysis that relates to the question of whether the deputy could reasonably suspect the defendant had been involved in the fight. The Brown court said, it is significant that the detention preceding the deputy's observations was exceptionally brief and non-intrusive. And in support of this principle, the Brown court cites this United States Supreme Court Hensley for the proposition it's proper for the court to consider both the length and intrusiveness of the stop and the detention. But does the fact that the detention that preceded the deputy's observations was brief and intrusive really bear on the question of whether or not the initial detention was proper? I mean, after all, a detention, of course, is bordered by the reason why this, the detention occurred in the first place. It, you can have a, a detention that's too lengthy or exceeds the scope if what the officers are doing doesn't relate to the reason why they made the stop in in the first place. But whether or not the stop is brief has nothing to do, right, with whether or not the initial detention, the initial stop was proper. That's correct. I don't think, um, based on recent Supreme Court rulings regarding prolonged detention, specifically the Rodriguez case, that that enters into the equation. And the reason I say that is, in the Rodriguez case, one of the things they talked about was the Eighth Circuit said that the prolonged detention, that was the, after the officer had issued a traffic ticket, he held the defendant so that he could walk his drug dog around the car. The Eighth Circuit said, well, it was only a brief inconvenience, if you will. The court, the U.S. Supreme Court here, did not seem to accept that. So I'd be very leery of that approach. Okay, so really it's two different questions here, whether or not something is lengthy for purposes of whether or not the the detention is 
unreasonably prolonged and whether or not the initial detention was proper in the first place. Correct. All right. Now, Mike, the second case I'd like to ask you about just issued last week. The case is an appellate decision entitled People versus Lynn. And it also dealt with whether a contact between an officer and a suspect was a consensual encounter or a detention. Yes. What happened in that case? Well, in that case, a uniformed officer is riding a marked police motorcycle. And he sees the passenger in a Ford Expedition. And by the way, the passenger is never identified. He's only referred to as the passenger in the case. Flick ashes from a cigarette out the window, which is arguably a violation of California Vehicle Code Section 23111. Also might have an argument about littering if you want to stop for that reason. Anyway, after the driver, who is the defendant in our case, uh, parks the car in a stall, the officer parks his motorcycle about three feet away from the driver's side door. He gets off his motorcycle as the defendant and the passenger are getting out of the Ford Expedition. The officer didn't turn on any lights or sirens. He didn't block the defendant's path. He didn't display his weapons. He didn't activate any air horns on his car on his motorcycle. Um, basically, in the officer's mind, the two were free to leave. The officer said the defendant did not get out of the expedition in response to any request from him or try to walk away. And he didn't tell the defendant not to go anywhere. So clearly, one would deem that almost a consensual encounter. The officer approached the defendant first and said, he was talking to her because the passenger had flicked ashes out of the car window. The officer asked the defendant for her driver's license, and the officer told the defendant to put out a cigarette that she had and also to put down a can of soda she was holding. Okay, now she's already out of the car at this yes, point. Yes, she is. Okay. Yes, she is. She's already parked the car, and she's out of the car when the officer arrives on his motorcycle. The officer then asked the defendant her name and to see her driver's license. When the defendant offered her license to him, the officer took it, held it in his hand, and he called the dispatcher and a rescue check on her. Uh, this all occurred before he began focusing on the passenger, the passenger being the one who was flicking the ashes from his cigarette. Okay, out so the he's, he's asking for her driver's license, even though the only person who really objectively is suspected of a crime is the passenger. Correct. Okay. The officer asked the passenger then he turns to the passenger and says why are you flicking ashes out the window passenger said he didn't know why he did that the officer asked the passenger for his name general biographical information uh, and the officer called in the passenger's name and his date of birth and followed up by asking the passenger for the residence address driver's license number so forth the officer then turned to the defendant and said i'm smelling alcohol right now at that point, the officer began investigating whether the defendant, the driver, had been drinking and eventually concluded that she had been driving under the influence and arrested her. Okay, so obviously the defendant made a motion to suppress. Yes. What was the defense argument as to why any evidence in this case should have been suppressed? The defense argued that based on the case of People versus Castaneda, a California Court of Appeals decision, once an officer takes possession of an individual's identification, that person's no longer free to leave. The people countered that argument by arguing that an officer needed no reasonable suspicion of a crime to approach someone in a public place and ask questions 
And that's all the officer did here. In essence, the defense argued detention and the prosecution argued consensual encounter. So how did the trial court rule? The trial court ruled that once the officer asked Ms. Lynn's ID and was running a records check, it was no longer a consensual encounter in the court's mind, but a detention because a reasonable person would not feel free to leave. Okay. Aside from that issue, did the defense also argue that, assuming that it wasn't a detention up to that point, that there wasn't sufficient evidence to arrest for a DUI? It was not discussed by them. They did not challenge the DUI arrest. They challenged the initial contact the officer had with the driver and said that that was the detention. Okay. They didn't challenge it up. They only started challenging it up to the point where the officer started smelling alcohol. Yes, correct. Okay. So the trial court finds that there was a detention at the point the officer retained the driver's license. Did the people appeal the trial court ruling? Yes, they appealed to the appellate division of the superior court of that particular court. And how do we fare in the appellate division of the superior court? We won. The appellate division of the superior court issued a six-page opinion in which it reversed the trial court's finding, relying heavily on the case of People v. Leith, which disagrees with the holding in People v. Castaneda. Now, the defendant at that point takes up the case. How did we fare when we finally got to a court of appeal? Not so well. We lost there. All right. Well, then, Mike, let's talk a little bit about why the appellate court ruled the way it did. Now, we already know from our earlier discussions that in situations involving a show of authority, a person is seized if, in view of all the circumstances surrounding the incident, a reasonable person would believe that he or she was not free to leave or otherwise terminate the encounter. Now, in making this determination, in general, what are some of the circumstances that might indicate a seizure occurred even where the person does not attempt to leave? Well, certainly the threatening presence of several officers has been deemed to be a situation where that would apply. The display of a weapon by an officer, some physical touching of the person of the citizen by the officer, the use of language or tone of voice indicating that compliance with the officer's request is compelled, that is not discretionary. Other relevant factors would perhaps include the time and place of the encounter, whether the police indicated the defendant was suspected of a crime, whether they retained the defendant's documents, that is the driver's license, for example, or whether the police exhibited other threatening behavior. Questions by an officer of a sufficiently accusatory nature may be caused to view an encounter as a non-consensual detention, and the same is true for commands or directions issued in the course of such an encounter. All right. In determining whether an encounter is consensual or a detention, should a court consider the totality of circumstances rather than adopt sort of any per se rules about what the ruling must be under a particular situation? Absolutely. The U.S. Supreme Court has continually said we look at the totality of the circumstances on a case-by-case basis. All right. Mike, now I know that in the past the United States Supreme Court has made it clear that in the ordinary course, a police officer is free to ask a person for identification, and that does not implicate the Fourth Amendment, 
and that asking for and examining someone's driver's license is permissible. In light of those cases, did the Lynn court find that the officer's taking of a voluntarily offered identification, like a driver's license, does not transform a consensual encounter into a detention? The mere taking of the license does not, but the holding of it did in the mind of the court. There are some cases, for example, Castaneda, which says if you hold on to that, that becomes a detention. Now, is that really the holding of, of Castaneda, Mike? And, and is that the holding of the Lynn court? In what sense? Well, you've indicated now that, and it, it appears that you're indicating that under the Lynn case, it automatically becomes a detention if the police officer takes the, the license or retains it. Is that what, is that the, what the court's holding the, is? The taking is not an automatic basis to believe a detention. The holding of it in and of itself is not, but it's one of the factors that will figure in the calculation. Okay, so I know that there's uh, been some dispute about this. Uh, there is the Castaneda case, which talks about how that factor is pretty much dispositive. Yes. And there's several other cases which find that it's not dispositive, that even though the officer may have taken and, and reviewed the driver's license, that doesn't necessarily convert the uh, encounter into a detention. Correct. Leith, Terrell, and Lopez say that it does not. What's the rationale behind those cases in which they find that taking a driver's license doesn't necessarily convert a contact into a detention? Well, Leith said that the right to ask an individual for ID absent any suspicion is meaningless if the officer needs suspicion to accept the individual's proof of ID. Leith also observed that the Castaneda opinion essentially eviscerates the rule that a law enforcement officer may ask an individual for ID without having any suspicion that the person has committed a crime because as soon as the person complies with the request, an unconstitutional seizure will have occurred. Okay. So in light of that rationale, what did the Lynn court hold regarding whether an officer's taking of a voluntarily offered ID card transforms a consensual contact into a detention? It weighs in favor of the finding of a detention. Now, since that doesn't automatically transform a contact into a detention, did the court find that under the totality of circumstances, in this case, there was no detention up to the point the officer smelled alcohol? No. What did the court hold? Well, based on the totality of the circumstances presented, the court held that no reasonable person would believe they were free to leave or otherwise terminate the encounter, regardless of the officer's demeanor and low-key approach here. Now, in coming to that conclusion, Mike, what factors did the court identify as objectively creating the circumstances that would indicate that the person who was stopped was not free to leave? The location of the stopped police motorcycle and the officer's pointed statements about the passenger's conduct, followed by the immediate request of Miss Lynn for her ID. Okay, now I know that there was various uh, factors that they looked at. Uh, as you indicated, that uh, the officer tells the driver that he's investigating the passenger. 
In some ways, though, Mike, it seems like the officer would want to tell the driver that the reason he's making contact is to investigate the passenger as a way of alleviating any fear on the driver's part that the driver was the focus of the investigation. I also thought it was a little kind of interesting here where the Lynn court thought that by saying that, the officer was essentially accusing the driver of engaging in the criminal activity of the flicking of the ashes outside the window. But the person who flicked the ashes outside the car window was the passenger. Correct. And it doesn't seem like there's any reasonable theory there where someone who's driving the car is going to be held criminally responsible for the conduct of the passenger unless they're basically telling the passenger to discard the ashes. So that particular factor doesn't seem like it would be something would weigh in favor of, of finding the detention. But, of course, that's what the court said. What other factor did the court look at? Well, the courts looked at a second factor, the retention of the ID by the officer here. Now, I can see why the court may have considered that factor as weighing in favor of finding a detention because, after all, if someone's license is taken, they're not going to necessarily be able to go anywhere. They need that license to do stuff. So the fact that it's kept in the possession of the officer is, even though they may have given it up voluntarily, is something that may have some sort of coercive effect. Although I have to say, when I'm looking at this opinion here, they're making reference to some law review articles in a, in a footnote where they say, well, these law review articles indicate there's empirical research that suggests that a significant number of people do not feel free to leave when approached by the police, and they feel even less free to leave when the police assert mild forms of authority. Now, this is just a footnote here, Mike but it does seem kind of like a bad omen uh, for future cases in which all of a sudden there's references to law review articles and social studies indicating that people do or do not feel free to leave when it comes to police officers. But I, it, Go ahead. I'm sure the defense is going to be citing that footnote in subsequent briefs. Yeah, the problem is, Mike, it, it can't be... If those are true, and, and that's actually a factor in determining whether or not there is a, a detention, you end up with a situation where the people who are responsible for investigating a crime are in a worse position, have less ability to investigate a crime than anyone else. It would seem so. Okay. Did the court draw any distinction between taking the license, checking it, and giving it back, as opposed to keeping it to run a records check. Yes. The holding of a license in the mind of the court had a coercive effect because walking away without it would have limited the defendant's ability to function in society, basically. Taking the license would be less significant if the officer had merely taken it, examined it, and promptly returned it. So they're making a significant distinction between just taking the license and looking at it and hanging on to it to run a records check. But I have to say, what's the point of the officer taking the license if they can't confirm its validity? I mean, there's, in almost every case, you're going to want to run the license. That's the reason, really, why you're taking it in the first place. Absolutely. All right. 
What other factors did the court consider? The court looked at the officers as they termed it, commandment to put out her cigarette and put down her soda can while obtaining her license and then using the license to run a records check. The problem here is that the officer is doing things to protect his own safety. A cigarette could be a weapon, a can could be a weapon as well, and they completely ignore that in their opinion. They don't even address the issue. Right. I know that, that there's cases out there where courts have held that an officer's order to someone to remove their hands from their pockets doesn't convert what would be a consensual encounter into a detention because these are uh, requests that really deal with just officer safety and don't necessarily convey that the person is not free to leave or terminate the encounter. Correct. But we don't hear anything about that in this case. They just really look at this factor, the fact that the officer is ordering uh, the, uh, the defendant in this case to put down the cigarette in the can as something that distinguishes this case from all those other cases where they found that a, uh, the taking of the license did not convert the consensual encounter into a detention. That's correct. Do you think, Mike, it would have made a difference if the officer merely asked the defendant to put out her cigarette and put down the soda can? Well, in dicta, the Lynn court indicated that even if the officer merely asked the defendant to put out her cigarette and put down the soda can, it would have still found that request to be coercive. And citing a federal case of U.S. versus Bocamp um, that had concluded that asking someone for ID or to exit his vehicle rather than telling the person was a purely semantic distinction. The Lynn court made no mention of nor attempted to distinguish the California case of People versus Franklin, a case in which the court held that asking the suspect to remove his hands from his pocket for safety reasons reasonably can't be construed as a show of authority sufficient to transform a consensual encounter into a detention. Yeah, I mean, these other cases make a distinction between ordering someone or telling someone to do something and asking them to do something. It's, it's not the same. I mean, there may be situations where you have an officer and in the way they ask it, uh, it really does seem like a command. But generally, if you're asking someone to do something as opposed to telling them something to do something, it conveys the sense that the person can refuse because you, otherwise, why would you ask them instead of just telling them? Right. All right, what other factors did the, the court look at? Well, the court looked at the fact that the officer didn't focus on the passenger until after first speaking with the defendant and initiating a records check. Mind you, there could be the argument that the officer spoke to the driver first so that the driver's fears would be assuaged as to why the officer was contacting them. In view of the court, um, that is the focus on the passenger here, would suggest to a reasonable person that she was the principal focus of the inquiry rather than focusing on the passenger focused on the driver. Okay, so the court itself found this factor because they focused first on the defendant and then initiated a records check of the defendant that that would suggest to a reasonable person that she, the defendant, was the principal focus of the inquiry. Yes. Could the court have upheld the stop on the ground that the officer was justified in detaining the defendant because he had reasonable suspicion that there was a violation of vehicle code section 23111 and therefore just properly stopped the defendant's vehicle in order to investigate the passenger's conduct? Well, the court rejected that argument because a violation of 23111 justified the detention of the passenger, but it couldn't justify detaining the defendant 
because she wasn't contacted until after she had parked the car and gotten out of it, you in essence don't have a conspiracy to flick ashes out the window of the car. Okay. Well, we'll see what happens with this case. It's brand new. It might eventually get taken up. Uh, overall, it purports to adhere to just a simple totality of the circumstances. Some of these circumstances, the court does weigh, uh, seem less coercive than the court imagines them to be, but uh, we'll have to see what happens with that. All right, Mike, I just want to say thank you very much for joining me on this podcast. I know that there's been a recent rash of cases involving probation search clauses that folks probably need to know about. Uh, Do you think you might be willing to return sometime in the very near future to give us some insight into those cases. I would love to. Okay. Thanks very much. You're welcome, Jeff. Thank you.